1: day was said by Henry Ward Beecher. Every artist dips his brush into his own soul and paints his own nature into his pictures. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirshton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the painter Randall, David Tipton, and the story of the moon and the dressmaker. Announcements. We've got a bunch of classes coming up, some of them here at the Indianapolis Art Center. We've got a four-day plein air painting workshop in August, animal painting, uh, class in June, the Art and Soul Retreat. I've got flower painting, Victorian flower painting, and the secret language of symbols. So, lots coming up. Um, if you want to get updates on everything I've got going on, you want to sign up for my newsletter on my website, azurefineart.com. And if you do that, you also get updates on when new podcasts have been posted. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Randall David Tipton. Randall David Tipton is a contemporary landscape painter who depicts scenes from the northwestern region of the United States, especially his home state of Oregon. He sometimes works outside on plein air, but mostly he creates studio works from drawings, photos, hunches, and I love that, and memory, using an experimental approach. You can find out more about Randall's work at randaldavidtipton.com. Welcome, Randall.
0: Thank you, Addie. It's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm so glad that uh, you're here to chat with us today. So what's the story of how you became an artist?
0: Well, a real artist, a serious artist, a vocation, um, that really began very early as I became an adolescent. I was uh, plunged into a depression that just Mm. rocked me, and I did not know what to make of it or what to do with my life, and, you know, big, heavy questions for someone who's 12, Mm. Uh, but luckily, I was close to my parents and able to talk to them about it, and um, they were alarmed, of course, but they knew I liked uh, art classes and painting and stuff I did around the house and there was a new art center in my hometown and they got me enrolled in some classes and I was nurtured by lots of caring adults and mm. I succeeded in my works. they even were selling occasionally and it was I never looked back for a time there was a competing interest in science uh, mm. and as I got older I realized that that, too, would take, you know, a, 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 a tremendous commitment to it, and I mm. really couldn't do both, so I went off on the art direction.
1: <laughs> Tough choices.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, so uh, it, it's really been from the beginning, and I feel very fortunate in that I've never really had to question, why am I here, what am I doing, Um you know, looking for a passion of some sort. It it just was always answered. There's never been an identity issue in my Mm. life. And Mm. uh, I'm very grateful for that because I know lots of people who just really have been sort of tortured. What do I do with my life? Right. Yeah. And I've not had that problem. Thank God.
1: (laughs) Very good. Very good. So currently, do you work full time? doing your painting or do you teach on the side well that's a
0: uh, I do paint full-time and I don't do much teaching I have um, okay when I retired from the restaurant industry I was a waiter for 30 years it worked Uh, very well with supporting my painting
1: sure
0: and I thought um okay I'm not going to be doing that anymore a little too old for that but maybe I could teach um but it caused so much anxiety. I'm, I'm self-taught. I had a semester mm. of art school and one year of college, and mm. I was young and arrogant and thought, you know, I, I'm painting. I don't need to be taught how to paint. Mm.
2: And okay.
0: I just kind of dropped out. This is the early 70s, and uh, people did that. <laughs> and I, I lived okay. on a communal farm and just painted and, you know, I've always questioned whether that was the the right decision to be so independent so early. Hmm. Um, but at this stage, I, I think I actually did make the right decision. Uh, but yeah. it, it yeah. I, I just have never made a whole lot of money from it, but that's okay, too.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. or, you know, for myself right now, I'll make a lot of money one month uh-huh. because things are going real well and it. Last month, for example, I sold a ton of paintings. It was awesome. But oh, then that's, you know, that's no guarantee that this month I'm going to sell any. So I supplement my income with the teaching. And um, so I'm always curious, you know, how do people work their way up to becoming professional? So that's all they do. And it sounds like you were balancing it with being a waiter. And that would be a good fit because certain days you'd be there all the time. And then the rest of the time you could devote to to painting nice
0: right right Mm. right. however there Mm -hmm. was another factor i got involved Mm. with my husband john and he's a nurse and nurses are gainfully employed and in demand and (laughs) uh, my restaurant career overlapped john by many years but eventually he said you know why don't you just stop that and paint um you know i'm making enough you will sell paintings here and there and we'll be fine
1: oh Nice.
0: Yes, it seemed like just an amazingly generous thing for him to do because I wasn't making a whole lot of sales at the time. But he never um, questioned that original offer and it provided, you know, kind of a basis for me to really get involved and concentrate on my work. And in short yeah. order, I started making enough with the painting that. It surpassed what I would have earned as a waiter. So that felt really good.
1: Oh, yeah, that feels good. Oh, yeah. yeah I saw this illustration once where they said, Career as an artist, it's like you, you have a table and you don't want one leg <laughs> of yeah. a table because yeah. it'll just fall over. But if you have the support of your family members, you have um, maybe support from various other odd jobs, you've got this, you've got that, and then suddenly you have the support of that can enable you to, um, create what we create. Right.
0: Yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that.
1: And, mm-hmm. and as I've
0: gotten older, I've come to realize that artists fetishize this idea of n- making a living from their work, that mm-hmm. it has to support them in full. Mm-hmm. And I've just known a number of artists who really just slavishly, um, work toward that in and it's affected their work. They've repeated right. themselves a lot. And right. it just, it now seems to me like a really bad idea to make such a big deal of that.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. It puts the pressure on it and then you're not able to experiment and to grow in new ways. Right. Right. It's almost like
0: the social part of being an artist is placed higher than the actual experience of being an artist, you know mm-hmm. what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying
0: to fit into the culture or something, you know. I'm a success, which right. you know that's human nature, but I think it can contradict what the better part of the painting experience is.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have one friend who's um, he's retired, and he's one of my students in, in a class, mm-hmm. art class, and um, <clears throat> and he said to me recently, he said, Addie, I I'm loving the age that I'm at because I don't have anything to prove anymore because right. I spent so many years, you know, proving myself as a, you know, good employee and all these different ways. And, and now he just, he doesn't care. <laughs> I said, right. Wow. That's great. Maybe I can do that right now. I don't know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that.
0: <clears throat> there is then the other question, you know, that uh, making art is a form of communication. So <laughs> that has to be factored in too. Uh, Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. No one said this was going to be easy. Did they?
1: No, they didn't. didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'd agree that sometimes, um, sometimes I'm creating a painting and I really, you know, maybe there's a political message behind it or something, but I, I want for the viewer to understand the message that I'm trying to convey. Right. And um, and other pieces aren't as important. You know, there's just certain ones I can think of. As, I really want them to get it. I want them to get it. And um, but I've also found I have to let that go a little bit. You know, I can I can the hints for it in the title. It did and but I you never know how somebody else might misinterpret it later.
0: Well, tell me when you're doing something that is that has a political nature like that. You do want. Yeah. Your message to come across, but the actual Mm -hmm. execution, is it expression more than communication? I mean, if you had to kind of rank your motives, and if it's communication, what is your expectation uh, of the audience?
1: Oh, you stumped me (laughs) right on. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that was my job to stump you. Well, I'm just kind of
0: curious because, you know, there is a lot of contemporary art that yeah. deals with these yes. Yes. pressing yes. issues. And, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's not my nature. Um, I want to be outdoors and the physical environment is uh, really important to me. And I do follow <laughs> politics and environmental mm-hmm. policy and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But it's not what I want to be doing when I'm painting. So I'm very curious about artists that consciously paint things of a political nature, and
2: hmm.
0: what do they, you know, want from that activity?
1: Okay, so let's let me give you an example. Okay. So a few years ago, um, I was I, I ended up doing a lot of paintings of women, mm-hmm. and you know, depicting their beauty and their gracefulness. And 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 then, you know, sometimes a man would come into the scenes that there's a man looking at a woman. And and I look at these, I think, well, did he have to be a man? Did you know? And and when you just have the edge of a face, Mm -hmm. you know, how how much of their gender is there? How much of the gender am I projecting onto it? And so several of the pieces became about me thinking about these gender issues which a lot of folks are this kind of on our minds lately and right. and playing with that and then kind of wanting for the viewer to maybe have it in question and then yeah. to think oh does it even matter or we you know so um so that's what that series of paintings were about but in that case, if it really didn't matter, does it matter if the viewer understood that that's what I was exploring? Right. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Right. So your project was to present ambiguity, and once you yes. did that, your job was done. Yeah. Is that a way of putting it? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Huh. So
0: did you feel satisfaction from it?
1: I did. I did. I did. And in fact, you know, that was a series of paintings where I created a bunch of them. And, and then once I was done, I was done. I've not done any more in that particular style since then. I'm always moving in these waves. (laughs) There's, you know, one style or theme is coming and then it, it kind of tapers off and another theme comes into play. Um, and that one has been laid to rest for the moment. You never know. I might come back to it later again, but, um,
0: Hmm. I think that that's a sign that you did succeed when you can uh, move on. Like uh, yeah. So that does sound successful.
1: Oh, good. Well, well one could hope. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. hope. Okay. So my next question for you, Randall. Huh? One of the things I love about your paintings is that they're obviously inspired by nature. Right. Right. Yet they have this loose modern quality, sometimes the fate Space is flattened. Sometimes um, you've got these expansive, empty spaces within the forms. Oh, it's it's. It reminds me somewhat of Asian painting, where you'll have this blank canvas. You know, the, the, everything has room to breathe. So, um, but how important is it to you to realistically depict the shapes that you see in nature before you? And and not at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, th- no, that that's too glib. Uh, not much. I I, I want the uh, essence of that landscape to come through. Okay. But there's other factors in my agenda. Um. It's interesting. You you see the Asian influence that's been there from the beginning.
1: Okay.
0: Just as a, a child, I discovered a Japanese brush painting.
1: Uh oh.
0: And it just really knocked my socks off. And um, especially that Zen variety for, you know, there's these strokes that are very deliberative and uncorrected. And Mm -hmm. a little later, still a teenager, I learned about the abstract expressionists and they also believed in this spontaneity. I mean, some of them like uh, De Kooning and Pollock and that, really appealed to me too so in in the landscapes I I have two things going and it's interesting that you call your project here something about alchemy because that's exactly what I think most of us are trying for I want a rich experience myself in this process of moving the paint around of the plasticity of the paint, its qualities, thick, thin, um, color, all of that. I I wanna be very engaged with paint. Hmm. And the inspiration for the image comes from my life and how I need to be out in nature, outdoors and all weather. And I just trust that that need of mine and those experiences will come out in the painting process. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the way I paint is I I kind of just put things on a canvas or a piece of paper and then just start moving things around, often with a subject in mind, a composition even, and when things start looking right, uh, right as a, uh, a corresponding visual uh, image to okay. the experience I had. Uh, you know, I know I'm then on the right track. That's where memory comes
1: in. Okay. Okay. Huh. So it's more, you would say, depicting your experience of being in that landscape. Absolutely. And what it feels like to be
0: in that space. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And, and not just visually, all
1: the senses. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, Yeah.
1: Hmm. So how do you depict a smell? (laughs)
0: Well, I've done a lot of paintings of uh, creeks, for instance, and I try to narrow in on uh, a small corner of a creek and I'll paint in the mud and the shadows and Mm. maybe a highlight here and there so that you can see that, you know, the sun might be shining and In the summer, especially, these smells are released in the warmth, and I hope that there's a sense of that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, oh, well, I think there is. Yeah, that's why I love them. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. What projects are you currently
0: working on? Well, I've got a couple things going on. I have a show next summer at the Coos Bay Art Museum on the southern Oregon coast. And it's an honor, and I thought, well, for this, maybe I should do all new paintings, and that's my goal. Okay. I had a local guy make me some large canvases. Oh, exciting. Yeah, it was, and is. Uh, And with those large canvases, I'm doing two different things. Um, I'm doing new paintings based on my new experiences outdoors, but I'm also taking older studies, that I did as studies, you know, over the years that never became anything larger because I felt like I had made my statement with the small work. Well, some mm-hmm. of those I think lend themselves to a larger scale and I'm, you know, trying to work with that a little bit. And then there's a, a side project that isn't related really to the show or even to painting, but, um, I, I I now have, and I'm talking through a iPad Pro. This is their oh. most expensive <laughs> iPad. And I'm okay. not a gadget collector, mm-hmm. but a friend of mine had this particular iPad, and she had the new pressure sensitive stylus Ooh. and a program called Procreate that only, well, the version she had only worked on the iPad Pro. And it seems like it was made for animators and it's extremely sophisticated, but also very, very easy to, okay. to use. And this is just thrilling to me because I have a studio full of, you know, old paintings and old figure drawings and sketches I did on location and they're artifacts and that's Mm. fine. And you know, occasionally one might sell, but I love the idea of something that's just digital and is only an object. If I want it to be through printing it
2: Mm. and
0: this, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just so excited about it. I don't draw from the figure anymore. I did Mm. for years and this would have been just ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, This summer, I'm going to take it out on location while my friends struggle with their French easels. I'm just going to sit down and start drawing on this thing. It really is fun and very mesmerizing. And, in fact, I have to make myself stop because I do create artifacts and sell them. That's part of what I do, and it's important. I need to make a living. So if I'm on an iPad all day drawing – you know, that's not real smart in a, <laughs> uh, you know, sense of making the living. Sure, I'm not interested yeah. in, in, in selling prints. What I thought eventually is when I get enough good ones, I can just email them to people and they could uh, print them if they want.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah For so... free. I like yeah. that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. How often do you end up just pressing the delete button?
0: Oh, often. I just yeah. got it yeah yeah okay. it doesn't really matter. Um, <clears>
1: throat> yeah
0: throat> I, I it's a, it's a way to be creative that is totally divorced from market forces, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, and mm-hmm. it it's hard sometimes to find something where there really is a disconnect there, so you don't you know have to. Observe yourself making art and its practicality. I mean, I don't do a lot of that anyways, but it's always kind of in the back of my mind. Just on scale, for instance, is it smart for me to be painting tiny watercolors right now when I have a show that has to be done by mid-June? You know, Mm. questions Mm. like that. And so I go to the iPad and just start drawing at the end of the day, and it's just really fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It sounds like a release. It Mm -hmm. is. It is. Yeah. What advice would you give to your younger artist self?
0: Well, I would encourage young Randall to make peace with his jobs uh, Mm. that would support the painting. Um, I don't know if it's an aspect of youth or not, but uh, I remember feeling kind of resentful at times that uh, I was having to do this work when I was just so anxious to be in my studio. It didn't seem fair. Well, as we all know, (laughs) there is no fairness, right? Right. (laughs) And as I got older, I I began to appreciate other things that was given me besides income, like some really wonderful friendships and... When you deny, are denied something, uh, it's more precious when you finally get it. So when I yeah. did have that time, it usually was extremely productive. And yeah. I produced a lot of paintings. And eventually, thank, thankfully, I began to understand the whole, and my resentment totally dissipated, and I began to really enjoy my job. It took the, one of the last jobs, and it took that particular job. Yes. Uh, but it really felt almost like a triumph that, you know, I finally got emotionally square with that. Ah,
1: yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was nice. So I would just tell Randall, you know, this is the right thing. Um okay. There is no there there in your career. Uh, the painting at the time, that's what you're financing. That's important. It's not, you know, a claim. It's not more money. It's that experience that is really kind of precious, and not everyone has it. And Mm. it's worth, you know, kind of keeping separate and protected. Mm. And that if you bring other questions about culture and income and all of that into it, you're going to kind of mess with it a little bit.
1: Yeah. True enough. Yeah. What's the main message you're trying to convey with your work? If you could say one message. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I don't uh, consciously think of a message. Okay. I really don't. What I'm trying to do is, kind of honor my impulses and make them into a coherent visual object. And, you know, I do believe that there's kind of inherent in the human nature this um, connection and appreciation of the world and the natural processes. And I, I assume that some people will bring their own appreciation for nature to my work
2: mm.
0: and find some kind of communication there that might be meaningful to them. But I don't know. And furthermore, you know, that's just a hope. If I get my message, so to speak, mm. that's when I think I'm successful, when I've accomplished this alchemical combination of marks and engagement with, you know, slippery oil paint or watercolor and create something like my experience out there Mm. that I feel satisfied.
1: Lovely. Lovely.
0: Thanks.
1: What's your favorite art book or story? Well, I
0: just did a blog post last night and I mentioned a book I read 30-some years ago, Hmm. by the poet Lewis Hyde, and it is called The Gift, and it had this wonderful subtitle. At that time, they've since changed it, uh, but it was called Imagination and the Erotic Life of Property. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so I had to think that through, but I read the book, (laughs) and, I mean, he's a poet, right? So Okay. The writing is going to be beautiful, but I was just ravished by it. I mean, he's talking about really uh, historical, anthropological factors of being an artist and how in other cultures an artist is perceived and what the experience of being an artist is in other cultures and how inspiration, where does that come from? How really there are elements of the divine, however anyone would you know, define that in the paint or in the art making process. Mm-hmm. And then that communication is also a spiritual experience in the viewer. And mm-hmm. how difficult it has been through time to finance that without mm-hmm. losing this sort of sacred quality to it. And mm-hmm. Just just hearing that it was difficult, um, you know, it was one of those situations people frequently have this where they think they're all alone in a struggle. <laughs> yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. And then they mm-hmm. realize, oh, my God, lots and lots of people are, are dealing with the same thing. He kind of just laid it out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, my goodness. It, it just really answered some real pressing questions i would had for years. It's a beautiful book. Um, yeah, his, his writing is just exquisite.
1: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, I'll have to look it up because I've not heard of that before. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Randall, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, and it. Addie, we're done. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate
0: you asking me, yeah. and it was fun.
1: And now for the story The Moon and the Dressmaker. Once upon a time, there was a dressmaker who worked hard at constructing the most stylish outfits in the village. She had a long list of clients who were waiting for her to make new clothes for them. She often worked late into the night to complete as many projects as possible. Well, one evening, she was leaning over her work table, cutting out pieces for the princess's next ball gown, when she heard a whisperer say, Dear dressmaker, please... "'Make me a gown of the finest silk.' "'The dressmaker looked up. "'High in the sky, the moon gazed down upon her. "'The moon smiled and asked again, "'Please, dressmaker, please make me a gown of the finest silk.' "'The dressmaker thought for a moment and then shook her head. (laughs) "'How could I ever make you a gown?' One day you are round, and then you get smaller and smaller until you are just a sliver. And then you change back again. No, I'm sorry, Moon, but you change too often for me to make a gown that will properly fit you. (sighs) The moon sighed sadly. The dressmaker comforted her, saying, Don't worry, my dear. Everyone thinks you are beautiful just as you are. And with that, the dressmaker leaned over to her work and began pushing the needle through the fabric once again. So that story was written by the Greek author Aesop, sometimes pronounced Aesop, uh, circa 600 BC. It's a funny one, isn't it? Uh... There's part of me that wishes, well, why don't you just make her a, a number of different outfits? Why don't you just make the moon a teeny little dress and a big wide dress? And, and, um, and then she can have the dress that she wants. But there's a message here about hmm, things having to fit correctly. There's a message about accepting things the way they already are. And how can we apply this to our lives as artists? Well, you know, the dressmaker is an artist. She's making things for people. Sometimes it doesn't work to create an object for somebody if it's not a good fit for them. So, for example, if I try to make um, the perfect landscape painting that this certain person wants to have above their fireplace, but... They have an idea in their head of what they want. I've got an idea and my own style going. And sometimes they're just not going to fit. Yeah. And, And then going back to the moon being beautiful as she is, sometimes we don't even need those things that we think we want. So, things to think about. Well, this story and many others are available in my book the alchemy of art stories for the classroom this concludes our alchemy of art podcast for today may these stories about art and the creative process inspire you may you find your voice
0: you have been listening to the alchemy of art podcast to find out more about annie hirshton and her work Go to azirfineart that's A Z H I R F I N E A
2: R T dot com.